Good morning, Forest Hugh. I trust you are keeping well wherever you find yourself this morning. We're at, we're approaching mid-summer almost, aren't we? Mid-July anyway. And uh, I almost want to share a couple of things about ministry happening here at the church. First of all, our, uh, our activity-based day camps are underway and Emma Halverson is doing a great job creating uh, activity packages, going out to families and uh, Zoom sessions that are engaging and fun and short. Um, if you as a family are, are thinking about en enrolling your kids, I certainly encourage you. It's great to, uh, to have uh, activities and all the shopping done for you and everything delivered to your door or picked up here at the church. Uh, all the supplies that you need to keep your kids engaged in activities. And uh, like I said, the Zoom sessions, they're short, they're creative, they're fun, and they're optional as well. Uh, but they do include Bible stories and Bible songs and, and a way for kids to connect a little bit uh, this summer. As well, um, if you're following us on social media, you might know that we have bees. As part of our Creation Care Initiative, we are, uh, we're, we're doing beekeeping. And so I've set aside three Tuesday nights uh, in August where I'd love to introduce you to our bees. I can have eight or 10 of us here at a time. Um, we will be physically distanced from one another and physically distanced from the bees. Uh, so if you wanna come see our bees and meet them and we'll just talk about beekeeping uh, together, uh, let me know. Okay, I'd love to have you come sometime. So we're continuing in our series on life together. We, uh, we've been in this for a while now, but that's okay. Uh, being in life together uh, requires time. So, so we're not gonna apologize for that. Last week, we, uh, we uh, ended chapter one and moved into chapter two. And as uh, Nat was taking us on this journey, he was reminding us he was speaking to us primarily about unity and reminding us that unity is dependent upon our humility. So we want to pick up the theme of humility this morning, moving into chapter 2 of Philippians. In ch chapter 2, Paul holds up Jesus to his readers as the model for Christian living. And in thinking of the character of Jesus, Paul could have talked about a lot of things. He could have talked about integrity, forgiveness, service, joy, hope. Uh, but he doesn't. Instead, he talks about humility. I'm sure we're all familiar with the real estate axiom. You know, the one that says, what are the three most important things to consider when buying a house? Location, location, location. Well, I recall a Bible teacher picking up on this and saying, what are the three most important characteristics of the Christian life? And what are they? Humility, humility, and humility, making that point. Uh, so with this in mind, I want us to read from Philippians 2 this wonderful and familiar passage that says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Upon reading this, if we were to ask the Apostle Paul, what does humility look like? The answer would simply be Jesus. Paul uh, begins by talking about uh, a couple of lines about humility, but then it's like he says, really friends, just be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. 
And from there, he goes on to recite what was probably um, a, a Christian hymn. Uh, describing the humility of Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at Jesus as our model of humility. But as well, we understand that the model of in Jesus, that the model of Jesus inspires others. So I'm also interested in looking at the life of Martin Luther King uh, as a model of humility. And why Martin Luther King? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I've had his biography, autobiography, sitting on my shelf for about a year now. And with summer coming, I was putting together my summer reading list, and I thought this is the time to read about Martin Luther King. And so as I have done that, I've recognized that this man is a great model for us of humility. So I'd like us to learn from Jesus, and I'd like us to learn from Martin Luther King. Looking back at our reading, the one we just did, Paul begins by saying that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but instead we are to consider others more important than ourselves. Eugene Peterson in the message translates this as, don't push your way to the front, don't sweet talk your way to the top, put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. As we look to the life of Jesus uh, as our model of humility, we'll begin with his encounter in the wilderness. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was led by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness to fast and to face the, uh, the temptations of his accuser, the devil. Now, I believe that the temptations that Jesus experienced were real uh, and that the offers of, of his accuser left Jesus pulled in two directions. Take the shortcut, or follow the long, hard road laid out for you by your Father. In refusing to give in to the temptations to what Philip Yancey calls miracle mystery and authority, the miracle of turning stones into bread, the mystery of throwing yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and being rescued, the authority of, uh, of being king over, uh, over all the dominion, over all the known nations. By refusing these, Jesus was saying, I'm not going to take the shortcut. To do so, would have been selfish. It would have been Jesus saying, I'm doing this my way, God. I'm going to compel belief through supernatural displays, not through sacrificial love. But of course he doesn't. Jesus' response to his accuser was a clear no. Jesus' understanding his calling was to follow the hard path. Jesus understood that his calling was to follow the hard path that the Father had laid out for him. He passed up the offer of immediate power to reiterate his original intention, which was to be subjected to God's wisdom and God's plan. With some similarities, when Martin Luther King was 25 years old, newly married, and nearing the completion of his PhD from Boston University, he had a big decision to make. Growing up in the southern states and now living in the northern states, he could remain in the north and pursue a career in academia while his wife pursued a career in music. Or he could accept a call to pastor a church in Montgomery, Alabama, a city known as the cradle of Confederacy. In his autobiography, King tells about how the church where he was to receive his call in Montgomery, Alberta, was a block away from the state capital where Jefferson Davis took his oath as president of the, of the Confederate States. In King's words, here at that state capital, the Confederate flag was made and unfurled. I was to see this imposing reminder of the Confederacy from the steps of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church many times in the following years. 
King, uh, King, King, when he took this position, talk about living in the shadow of your oppressor. King didn't just go to the south, he was at the center of the battlefield. And as he was pondering this choice between staying in the north or going to the south, King describes himself as being torn in two directions. On the one hand, he was inclined toward the pastorate, but on the other hand, he was inclined toward academia. And if he accepted the church, could he pastor a church in the north, or should he return to the south, the society of segregation? Did he want to live under this again? Did he want to have and raise a family under segregation? And what about the opportunities for his wife, for his wife Coretta? She was a musician. Certainly there were more opportunities for her in the north than there would have been in the south. And so King writes, for several days, Coretta and I talked and thought and prayed over each of these matters. Finally, we agreed that in, the spite, in spite of the disadvantages and inevitable sacrifices, our greatest service could be rendered in our native self. We came to the conclusion that we had something of a moral obligation to return. The South, after all, was our home. Moreover, despite having to sacrifice much of the cultural life we loved, despite the existence of Jim Crow, we had the feeling that something remarkable was unfolding in the South, and we wanted to be on hand to witness it. So we went back to Montgomery. I trust you can see the parallels here. Both Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and King at the beginning of his are required to make a choice, and both of them choose the harder path. They both say no to what would have been selfish ambition, which would involve shortcuts and choosing comfort in order to walk the hard path of servanthood and humility. And the payoff? The payoff for them was being part of something remarkable God is doing. Jesus, as the Son of God, was the central figure in God's uh, wonderful redemption plan, and King, as the lead organizer of the civil rights movement, saw up close and personal what God was doing in the South through his willing obedience. Now, both of them paid for it with their life. But we know the rest of the story. Jesus was victorious over death, and King left a legacy that continues to inspire. Now, I believe all of this begs the question, what's so wrong with ambition? There are things that I want to do and accomplish that I can't do if I'm not ambitious. The great accomplishments of society are done by people who are ambitious. If we end up with a vaccine for COVID-19, it's going to be because of hardworking, ambitious scientists developing this for us and for the world. And of course, that's true. The writer of Proverbs doesn't think ambition is so wrong. He talks about uh, commending the ant as an example of initiative, hard work, and planning. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as founder and creator, words that we reserve for people of ambition. And so, of course, ambition isn't the problem. It's selfish ambition. That's the problem. So let me ask this. How do we know if our ambitions are selfish or if our ambitions are healthy? Let me offer two suggestions. First, we allow the Holy Spirit to tell us Let's look at our examples. Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness before facing the temptations of his accuser. Martin Luther King and his wife Coretta spent several days talking and praying over their decision about whether to remain in the north or move back to the south in the land of segregation. Friends, our motivations will be revealed to us as we invite the Holy Spirit to do the work of revealing them to us. The Spirit will do this as you commune privately with God. 
which again is why we talk about at church, at church at Force You, we talk so often about the importance of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines create space in our life for the Spirit to move and act, creating longer spaces in our daily rhythms, in our monthly rhythms, in our yearly rhythms that allow us to hear from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will do this not just uh, as we create long spaces, but as we pause during the day and invite the Holy Spirit into little decisions we make. Lord, why am I doing this? What's my motivation here? Is it selfish or is it to serve others? And I think here it's fair to stop and pick on social media because I think we always need to evaluate our relationship with social media. A recent Toronto Blue Jay put something out on Twitter that raised questions about whether he was going to break the quarantine bubble that he was required to be in as a baseball player. And so some sports commentators suggested that maybe athletes should pause, reread, and consider what they're writing before they post it. And of course, that's great advice that we could all heed. But as Christians, likewise, with our social media, we can make it a practice to pause and ask the Holy Spirit to show us, why am I posting this? Is this for selfish reasons or is it serving others? Is it informative? Is it encouraging? Is it inspiring? Or is it about, or is it about managing my own image? The Holy Spirit will reveal this to us. And the Holy Spirit will also not, uh, um, not just speak directly to us, but the Holy Spirit will use community as well to reveal these things to us. We need friends who are more than cheerleaders who think that all of our great ideas are amazing. We need friends who are willing to, uh, who, are in, who are themselves in tune with the Spirit and who are willing to challenge us and question our motives. These are not always the friends we want to hear from, but these are the friends we need to have. And this is a challenge for us in two ways. We need to be those kinds of friends, or we need to have those friend, types of friends, but we also need to be those types of friends as a community. It's the only way that it's going to work. We need to be people who are in touch with the Holy Spirit so that we can speak into the lives of others. So how do we know if our ambitions are selfish or healthy? Well, first, we invite the Holy Spirit through personal relationship with God and the Holy Spirit and through relationship with others to reveal this to us. And second, we don't allow ambition to trump our passion. Masai Ujiri, president of the Toronto Raptors, a sports team who, uh, for those of us who are basketball fans, hope will someday be, uh, will one day soon be relevant, again, gave this piece of management advice in an, in an interview with Bill Simmons on Bill Simmons' podcast. He said, specifically, Messiah Jiri's words were, be more passionate than ambitious. To understand this better, I want to insert in parenthesis this, be more passionate about your principles than ambitious. What is the principle in this passage that we are looking at today? Paul gives it to us when he says, consider others more important than yourselves. In other words, be humble. That's the principle for us. With this in mind, we should be asking ourselves, or you can ask yourself, I can ask myself, has your ambition caused you to lose passion for the principle of humility? Have you lost your passion for serving others? And have you and have you and your own ambitions become more important? Think for a moment about your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, your clients, or others around you. Are you passionate about serving them? Are you interested in their well-being and success? Are you investing in them? Or has your ambition gotten in the way? 
your ambition for comfort, for peace, for quiet, for success. Now I want us to think about our enemies because the Christian principle of thinking of others uh, better than yourselves for us extends to our enemies as perhaps as much or even more. Prior to reading King's autobiography, I had heard of Letter from a Birmingham Jail, but I didn't really know what it was. I certainly didn't know the context of it. Uh, but having read it now, all I can say is, wow. King's Letter from a Birmingham Jail is addressed to my dear fellow clergymen. These clergymen are a group of eight white ministers from Alabama who take out a newspaper ad and call out his actions, uh, King's actions, as being unwise and untimely. Considering the context, uh, King is in jail, he's suffered much for the cause of justice. Uh, considering that context, if King's response to this letter showed his impatience, and if he came across as over-the-top angry, I think we would probably give him a free pass on that. He is human after all. But he doesn't respond like this. Showing his respect and believe in the best about these men, he writes, Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. But since I feel you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statements and what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Aren't these words of love? King affirms his enemies despite their criticism. He then closes the lengthy letter saying, I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother, yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood. I wanna encourage you uh, today to take a few minutes and, uh, and read that letter from a Birmingham jail. It is powerful and it is instructive and informative for us in our lives now. And it's a rich example of someone whose ambition did not cause him to lose sight of his passion and principles to love and serve others, including his enemies. The ambition of Martin Luther King was to bring healing and peace to a nation torn apart by racism. The ambition of Jesus was to bring healing and peace to a world torn apart by sin. As we segue into communion, let's close with a thought on Jesus. In the Gospels, there are a number of pictures of Jesus and the humility of Jesus, but perhaps the most powerful, and can I say pathetic, is the picture of Jesus carrying his own cross to his own execution. And not only does he carry his own cross, but he stumbles, and eventually Simon the Cyrene needs to carry the cross for Jesus. Unable to go any further, Jesus the Creator is dependent upon his created. Chris Nye, a pastor from California, says, Shockingly, Jesus allowed a man he created to help him carry the cross. The strange, discomforting, beautiful, mysterious, and scandalous thing about God is that he often chooses not to act like it. What kind of God accepts the help of his own creation? And of course, the answer to that question is this. Only a God who is not willing to take shortcuts even in his weakest moments. When Jesus said yes to the ways of the Father, he said yes to the greatest form of humility because we, you and I, and all of creation, matter more to him. He set aside his life in order that we might enter into life with him.
Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the humility of Jesus and the humility of Jesus that inspired others, including men like Martin Luther King and so many others who we could point to as models of this. But we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and, and that ultimately his humility uh, took him to carry his own cross to his own execution. Uh, and, and that the wonderful thing is we know the rest of the story, that he was victorious over death and that we can celebrate his death and his resurrection and that we can remember it by taking these uh, symbols that we have in front of us, a cracker and some juice, reminding us of his body and his blood poured out on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.